Well, ladies and gentlemen, it is 3.45, so we're getting a little lax here. Uh, we, might, we don't want to be as much as 10 seconds late. Uh, well, after that uh, presentation, we have another one. This one will be uh, a bit more forward-looking with a lot more on what we can do to avoid future problems. Mark Calabria is a colleague here at Cato. He's the director of the Financial Services Regulation Program at Cato. He has a background having been on the Capitol Hill with the Banking Committee, a staff economist, has a also academic background, PhD in economics from George Mason University. Take it away. Thank you, and I'm also very delighted to, to be Tom's neighbor. I'm always amazed when I see him coming home in his very small car that you could probably pick up yourself, and he manages somehow to fit an entire library in that car. It's, if you've ever seen the circus ones where it's five guys get out of a Volkswagen, that's like Tom unpacking his car when he comes home. I also would, would note I, I have copies, paper copies of the presentation up here that you can certainly feel free to come at any point and grab. I'm also going to do this a little differently. Uh, I know our last couple of speakers stood behind the dais. I'm going to get out here a little bit. That makes it a little bit easier for me that if I see you nodding off, I could come up and poke you a little bit. <laughs> I know it's a little late in the day. Uh, I also want to, you know, I hope you've all enjoyed the last couple of days as much as I have. Uh, I actually felt a little intimidated by all of just the amazing slides that Rob McDonald has had. It really was pretty terrific. Uh, I figured I would substitute by that by channeling my inner Italian and talking a lot with my hands, <laughs> except that I noticed that Amy talked with her hands and she had pictures. So um, it's really quite, uh, quite the bar. So I figured the way I'm going to top that is I'm going to have graphs, because I know there's nothing that says fun like a time series. <laughs> um, so what I'm going to talk about today is what got us into this crisis, what gets us into crises in general, and what we can do to avoid them. Now, I first want to start talking about, and of course, you know, I'm, I do our financial regulation stuff, so you can imagine I really am the banking and finance. I think about it a lot, almost think about it too much, but I think it's important to remember that it really touches lots of the rest of our lives. You know, for instance, every time we have a financial crisis, it makes us a lot poorer, and I'm going to go through these in a little bit more detail. Uh, they also lead to massive expansions of government. I have a lot of appreciation for what our healthcare folks do, but I would say if it was not for the financial crisis, I do not believe we'd have Obamacare. I believe that set the groundwork for having that expansion of government. Uh, and of course, you see a big expansion of government control of the banking sector after every financial crisis. Uh, and then also, uh, there's not, it's not a mystery why our friends in Germany are so worried about inflation and financial crises. There's a lot of feeling there that those events in the 20s led to some very bad events in the 30s and 40s. So again, trying to control those uh, knockoff effects from financial crises. And of course, to me, the biggest part of this is a loss for trust in markets. Uh, as I mentioned, big, big economic costs to having a financial crisis. Our most recent financial crisis, we saw unemployment go from 4.5 to 10%. It's come down since to 8.2. A lot of people lost their jobs. A lot of people lost their livelihoods, lost their wealth. Uh, on average, during financial crises, output falls pretty considerably, 9%. Uh, and of course, government debt explodes. Now, some of this is, of course, the bailouts, which cost us money. Some of this is, of course, partly the business cycle. So financial crises are very expensive. Now, one of the, to me, one of the primary reasons that I care about financial crises as a libertarian is I believe that they are probably the biggest factor for undermining faiths in markets. And I would just want to quickly read a quote from Ludwig von Mies, which is, nothing harmed the cause of liberalism more than the almost regular return of feverish booms and the dramatic breakdown of bull markets followed by lingering slumps. Public opinion has become convinced that such happenings are inevitable in the unhampered market economy. So it's really critical for me to try to set us on the path of getting rid of financial crises because again, every time we see them, you know, people lose faith in the market, people lose faith in freedom, and you see these very large expanses in the government that come about because of that. Uh, and again, I've mentioned earlier uh, a little more detail. After every financial crisis, we see a very large expansion of government ownership within the financial services industry. You might have heard of Alibank, that used to be part of GM. We own that, 74% today, owned by the taxpayer. Fannie and Freddie, they're ours. We have them now, whether we want them or not. Uh, the Royal Bank of Scotland is also owned by the, by the uh, British government. So again, many of these things throughout the world, you see this massive expansion of government ownership. Now, this is important for the economy, and I've taken a couple of economists, or rather a trio of economists from Harvard have found, doing lots of data over lots of financial crises, 
that the more government ownership you have, the slower your growth, the slower your output, the slower your later productivity. And a lot of this comes back to, unsurprisingly, that when the government owns large pieces of financial institutions, the political pressures push them to do things that are not very good economically. For instance, there's tremendous pressure on government-owned banks today not to collect on mortgages. Now, it's obviously pretty hard as us as a taxpayer to get our money back if the banks are not trying to get the money back from people they've lent to. But again, politics enter this. They lead to less efficiency, that led to less growth. So it's very important, in my opinion, to have free financial markets because it allows capital to flow to the most highly valued use, which makes us more productive and makes us wealthier. And the more government ownership you have in that, and again, you see this after every financial crisis, very large expansion of government ownership of the financial market. Also, unfortunately, financial crises across the world are very, very common. I've picked just a few countries here, and this is the percent of years over the last 200 that they've been in a financial crisis. Uh, and so you can look at the US is actually pretty high. 13% of the time, we are in a financial crisis. Of course, there are some places like Zimbabwe, where about a third of the time almost, rather a little bit more than a fourth, they're in a financial crisis. And so it's across the board, but these things to be quite regular. Certainly in the US, we have them every 10 to 15 years, if not more often, it seems. Uh, and again, that undermines uh, the support for markets, and you see an expansion of government. So again, I think if we could lower the frequency of these things, we'd be able to maintain smaller government. Um, so let me talk about very general nature before I talk about specifically our most recent financial crisis. So ask yourself, essentially what drives financial crises is, is having these assets drive up in price by easy credit. And this can come from printing lots of money, can come from any easy lending practices. You also tend to see, when I say capital inflows, money from the rest of the round of the world flow into a particular country. We saw this in the late 90s uh, in Asia and in Russia where foreign money came in. Once things started looking shoddy, that foreign money flew back out, lending contracted, the economy contracted. Uh, and it almost always has some sort of asset content, asset content. And to give you a contrast with debt, the dot-com bubble lost about $8 trillion in paper wealth in the stock market. The housing bubble so far has cost about six and a half trillion. So the dot-com bubble was actually bigger, but it did not cause a financial crisis because it was an equity bubble versus a debt bubble. So you get into lots of trouble when you have debt throughout your economy, particularly when it's been highly subsidized by the government. And so you also see some sorts of expansions of financial innovation. As Tom mentioned, I worked on Capitol Hill during the crisis. I worked on Capitol Hill when the bubble was building. And let me tell you, we heard uh, by and large was despite warnings of it, everybody was not, oh, well, let's try to moderate the housing bubble. The action was, this is a great wealthy making machine. How do we get more people into it? And you get this continual pressure to, to have an expansion of uh, financial innovation that allows people to stretch to be able to try to game the bubble. And of course, when these things blow up, you get the trouble. It's also very hard to have a financial crisis without some sort of government guarantee. And the importance of the government guarantee is it breaks the link to market discipline. If you really think about it, the way, you, way a free financial market is supposed to work is that if I'm going to lend you money, I'm going to charge you more if I think you're incompetent, if you're reckless, if you have a bad business model, if you're fraudulent. Uh, I might not even lend to you in those circumstances. But guess what? If the government comes in and says to me, well, Mark, don't worry. You can lend, and the government will make you whole. I care a whole lot less about those other factors. I might still care, but I care a whole lot less. So you reduce that market discipline uh, that really constrains borrowing. You know, one of the things that always struck me as the oddest about Freddie and Fannie, for instance, is the more they borrowed, the cheaper it was for them to borrow. And it really should be the opposite. The more highly indebted you are, usually people charge you more. But again, the government guarantees severs those market regulations. And I think that's an important thing to say aside. Um, I'm not someone who believes that institutions self-regulate. What I believe is that other market participants regulate each other. And so this is not a world without regulation. It's a world where market participants freely monitor and regulate others and do so through the price mechanism rather than through regulation. And lastly, it's almost impossible, in my opinion, to have some sort of credit bubble without accommodative, easy monetary policy. It's not always the sole factor, but it's often the most important factor. And one way to think about this, and I always go back to my economics education, and many of the factors I just talked about are demand side. What I mean by that is the government essentially makes credit easier, makes money easier, which allows you to pay more to buy an asset. And so if you think about it, it is a shift in demand. Uh, and the extent of the asset bubble is going to depend on the supply curve. I'm going to come back and talk about this later in the context of the United States housing market. 
but the more inelastic that matter, that is the more vertical supply is, the bigger bubbles you get. You almost will never see a bubble in an asset where supply can immediately come online to meet demand. So you always keep in mind when you're thinking about, and when I go through some of the factors through the US financial crisis, keep in mind the supply and demand basics behind it. Um, so let's talk about our financial crisis. There's a number of factors, and I would even say I don't think this, this list is even exhaustive. There are certainly some that I think are less important that aren't on this list. Uh, and it's obvious that since I have a long list, I do not believe uh, it was a monocausal disaster. I believe a lot of things came together. Uh, and some others, of course, as I mentioned, global savings, where lots of capital came into this country, loose monetary policy. I'm actually going to go through all of these a little bit more individually. So rather than read the list, let's start going through them. As I mentioned before, uh, and what you're seeing here is capital inflows into the United States as a percent of GDP. And this is a measure of how much money was coming into the rest of the world uh, in, in terms of lending to the US. And it pretty much matches the expansion in the property market. So quite often, we were borrowing a lot of money from the rest of the world, and we were using it to bid up property prices. Uh, and of course, that, that, that trend started to decline a little bit after the bubble burst. But that's one of the things that added fuel to the fire, lowered interest rates. And of course, always keep in mind that asset prices tend to be inverse to interest rates. So the lower interest rates go, it usually will bid up asset prices. And so if you have a lot of money coming around from around the world, you push down interest rates, that push up, push up asset prices. So that's one of the factors that was at play. What to me was an incredibly important factor along the same lines was monetary policy, what the Federal Reserve was doing. And what I've represented here is what's something called the effective federal funds rate. This is the primary lever that the Federal Reserve uses to influence the economy. Uh, and so you can see that what you, and this is, I'll note, nominal. So this is not after inflation. I'm going to come back to that in just a second and say what's important. But you can see as the housing bubble was building, we had very, very loose monetary policy. And as the housing bubble started to let out was when the interest rates started coming up. And to add back to the inflation part, during this down part, you actually had three years where the real after inflation rate was negative. So the Federal Reserve had essentially set up three years where you were being paid to borrow money. Now, personally, I don't think you need to know anything else but that to know that a situation where I'm paying people to borrow money will usually lend badly. But we had to go beyond that. There were lots of other factors that involved. One of the other important mechanisms from the Federal Reserve is that almost all of the manipulations of the Federal Reserve are in the short term. And I'm happy to talk to you today about Operation Twist and quantitative easing and all these things that have been done recently. But up until 2008, the Federal Reserve primarily manipulated short-term interest rates. Now, the importance of that, and what I've got represented here, is what's called the yield curve, which is the difference between short-term and long-term rates. What this does is incentivize market participants to do all sorts of things. For instance, if you're familiar with the firm Bear Stearns, Bear Stearns' model was essentially they borrowed money overnight, every 24 hours, and invested it in 30-year assets. So they had this thing on their books for 30 years, but every day they had to go borrow money. Now, personally, I think that's a recipe for implosion. Why in your world would you do that? The reason you would do that is because as the bubble was building, the difference between short-term and long-term rates was almost 4%. So we were paying people to have a, what's called a maturity mismatch, where their assets and their liabilities were very different structured. And of course, that meant that they were going to get into funding trouble as soon as, they could, as soon as they ended up not being able to borrow money. They couldn't fund the assets they have. So to some extent, and you can take this to an extreme, we have a flat yield curve today that makes it very hard to make any money. So again, because of the Federal Reserve making a very steep yield curve, you encouraged all sorts of behavior, such as Bear Stearns behavior. You also encouraged lots of people to get adjustable rate mortgages. The number one determinant of whether you as a borrower decide to get an adjustable rate versus a fixed rate is, what is the steepness of the yield curve? So you incentivize all sorts of bad behavior by creating a very steep yield curve, which is what the Federal Reserve actually set out to do. As I mentioned earlier, it's almost really impossible to get in too much trouble unless you've got a lot of credit involved. As I mentioned earlier, yes, the dot-com bubble was painful and unpleasant, but despite the fact that more wealth was lost, we didn't get as much trouble as we did. We'd not have a financial crisis come out because of it. Now, the United States does tons of things, as do many other countries, to encourage people to take on lots of debt. And one of the, I think, the interesting differences, the first two lines are corporate after 
tax cost of debt versus equity. And the point is that the tax code drives a very big wedge between the cost of equity and the cost of debt. And we do this through things like you can, ex if I borrow money from you and pay you interest on it, I can expense that. But if I sell you equity and pay you a dividend, you have to pay taxes on that. So there are a variety of things that are done through the tax code that really push companies to become leveraged. So when people look at the system and say, it's crazy, why was there so much leverage? Quite honestly, I look at the system and say, why wasn't there more? There was just massive incentives to be very highly leveraged, most of which the government put in there. Also, it works on the, home, on the household side as well. Mortgage interest is deductible. Um, interest expense for rental properties are also deductible. So you really had a lot of very strong incentives for households and corporations to just take on a ton of debt. And I'll say as an aside, the importance of equity versus debt is that if you have borrowed debt and you've funded it to buy an asset, if that value of that asset falls below the value of your debt, you essentially become insolvent as a corporation. Whereas if your equity declines in value, your debt, it matches, so the equity will contract with the asset price. So again, if you equity fund things, you don't risk bankruptcy, you don't risk insolvency, at least not to the same extent as you do with debt. So again, almost impossible, in my opinion, to have a financial crisis without extensive debt in the system. Uh, of course, you've heard about Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. These were very large entities that the government implicitly stood behind. And of course, that severed the, the market discipline. They were also the primary drivers of the mortgage market. Now, note one of the things you hear is that you know, the subprime mortgage market drove the crisis. Freddie and Fannie were the largest buyers of subprime. So you had all of these subprime mortgage-backed securities that Wall Street put together, but they put it together designed largely for Freddie and Fannie, who were the ultimate buyer of these things who brought them on their balance sheet. And of course, as I mentioned, debt leverage is one of the things that always gets us in trouble in terms of subsidizing your financial crisis. Uh, you know, we, a lot was made that Bear Stearns was leveraged 30 to one. Well, Fannie and Freddie's off-balance sheet guarantees were leveraged 200 to one. That means they didn't even need to take one percentage point of loss before they were gonna become insolvent on those guarantees. So no, in no free market would you ever see any corporation be allowed by other market participants to be leveraged 200 to one. They simply would not be able to do it because nobody would lend them money on that kind of risk. You don't even need to have, uh, you know, I'm very sympathetic to my friend Peter Wallison and others that have focused a lot on Freddie and Fannie housing goals and the Community Investment Act, and I think all of those are troublesome. But the fact is, is even if Freddie and Fannie made great loans, the fact that their guarantees are leveraged 200 to one is a guarantee to me that they will be insolvent at some point. Nothing else than that. And also put it into perspective, uh, so far we've put almost 200 billion into Freddie and Fannie, we will probably put close to 300 billion. To compare that, since the Great Depression, we've had about 6,000 bank and thrift failures in United States history. If you add up the cost to the taxpayer of every bank failure we've had since the Great Depression to today, that cost is less than the cost of bailing out Freddie and Fannie. So anybody who tells you that Freddie and Fannie aren't important, aren't a big part of this, then they simply are not putting things in perspective. Uh, I'll also note that a lot of the loans, and this is where I do think the affordable housing goals comes into question, the loan, the, a lot of the losses for Freddie and Fannie were the loans they bought themselves and guaranteed themselves. And again, these losses have continued to come back and haunt us. Now, of course, a lot of the factor that got us in this trouble was an attitude in America that we had to have home ownership for everybody. We have things like the Federal Housing Administration, FHA, which has been leading the way for decades and getting people into loans with very little equity. And of course, keep in mind that if you don't have a lot of equity in your house, you have a lot less incentive not to walk away. You also have a much greater chance of becoming underwater, that is owing more on the house uh, than you have in terms of the equity of the house, uh, when you have very little down payments. And of course, there's a variety of things, the Community Reinvestment Act, the CRA, and HUMDA is the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act. So you had all sorts of essentially affirmative action within the mortgage market that pushed people to have a reduction in lending standards. And the regulators were quite explicit. For instance, the Boston Federal Reserve, which is a bank regulator, put out a lending booklet in the early 90s that suggested things like, well, you know, look if somebody pays the utilities on time, look how they pay their rent. So there really was a very large push by the federal government to get lenders to reduce their underwriting standards and to extend credit. As I mentioned earlier, my experience on the Hill is everybody loved the bubble and wanted to be in the middle of it. They did not want to shut it down. So a, a theme I'm gonna come back to is that, you know, for us to be able to reduce financial crises, we need to encourage contrarian voices such as short sellers and such that balance out the over-optimism, uh, whereas the government is always gonna come in and say, this is a great thing, let's get everybody else into it.
Um, as I mentioned earlier, and, and this is where I want you to go back and think about that supply and demand curve. There is a reason, and I guess I'll say as an aside, one of our outside scholars, Randy O'Toole, has done a tremendous amount of work in this area. His recent book, American Nightmares for Sale Outside, he really walks through the history of a lot of this. Uh, Randy goes as far to say that he believes that urban planners are responsible for the financial crisis. Uh, I'm willing to say that urban planners played a very big role, so uh, I don't really focus on the one variable as much as Randy does, but he's done tremendous work in this area. The point being is that over the last 30 years, we've increasingly seen local regulations that have made it increasingly difficult to build. And what this does is, you know, despite my earlier graph about supply and demand, these things don't adjust instantaneously, they adjust over time. So if the demand for housing goes up, the more quickly you get housing on the market, the less separation, the less distortion you get in prices. But because of supply restrictions, you essentially got to push in demand without accompanying supply. Uh, and that's why you see a lot of the problems in California, Florida, uh, and there are also geography. So I'm the first to say that not every problem under the sun was created by the government. In fact, if you're in some place like Phoenix, one of the major constraints on supply, even though they build like crazy in Phoenix, is you need to be able to bring water out. So in areas where you see a combination of geographic constraints, and this is similar in sort of Las Vegas, although I will note the federal government owns most of the land around Las Vegas, so there actually are very real supply constraints there. Um, by contrast, housing prices have yet to go down in Texas over the last 10 years. There was no boom and bust, even though places like Houston and Dallas grew just as much as Phoenix or, or Las Vegas. So they certainly had a lot of population come in, a lot of demand come in, but housing was easily able to come online and beat that. So again, you need to look at distinctions between supply and demand that come on. Uh, and again, this is one of the things that, in my opinion, made this absolutely a worse crisis. We have had housing bubbles in the past. In fact, we have them pretty regularly. We had them in the late 80s, early 80s, 70s, 50s, and of course, 20s was a massive housing bubble. Uh, and I should say, this, this almost goes across any property type in general. We had bubbles in office markets and shopping malls as well during the last decade. So it really is, if you be able to bring supply on, online, the prices will not get out of balance as much. And which means that when the correction finally comes, it won't be as painful. Uh, one of the things as well that, uh, that made this different, because as I mentioned, we pretty regularly in the US have property bubbles. It's all, you can almost count on them every 10 to 15 years. Uh, but they often in the past do not lead to financial crises. For instance, we had thousands of savings and loans fail, fail in the 1980s. That was painful, hurt the economy, did not cause a financial crisis. As I mentioned, we had a big boom and bust in the early 70s in the housing market. Lots of bad things were going on in the 70s, including very large levels of inflation. These things did not necessarily directly lead to financial crisis. The key difference this time around was we found a way, and I guess I'll also say, we had a subprime boom and bust in the late 90s. About a third of the subprime industry went out of business when Russia defaulted on its debt and interest rates spiked. Um, when all of those thing, companies went out of business, we did not have a financial crisis here in the United States in the late 90s. And why? Because they were funded by unregulated, or rather state-chartered, finance companies that were not backed by the government. So the taxpayer was not on the hook, you didn't have the moral hazard. Uh, and because these in, entities were not backed by the government, they often required very large down payments. You could have a very bad credit history, and you could still get a subprime loan, but they were going to charge you 20, 30, 40% down payment of your own money to be put in. So there were things that were offset there. And I would say the real problem with our reduction in underwriting standards was not that we lent to subprime people or that we made low down payments, it's that we combined the two. You can generally make a loan to somebody with bad credit if you do all sorts of things to try to offset that, like require a large down payment. You can generally make a loan to somebody with very little equity. For instance, any of us who've had a car loan, usually the second you drive off the lot, that car is worth less than the loan. But auto lending does not cause financial crises. The primary reason being, if you don't pay that car loan, they will come the next day and take your car away. Uh, if we did that with houses, we'd get a lot less financial crises, in my opinion, a lot less housing crises. But, the, but to the rating agencies, the role of the rating agencies was to facilitate spreading this risk out of the financial institutions, out of Freddie and Fannie, out of the banks, into the rest of the financial system. Because they would be able to rate securities, and then pension funds would be able to hold these securities. Uh, lands banks in Germany, which are kind of their version of GSEs, would be able to hold these securities. So because of the rating agencies and the regulatory structure of the rating agencies, which is essentially a protected monopoly, and I'll say as an aside, I came out with a paper on the rating agencies yesterday, which is on our website. 
And if you want to learn more about the rate interest, I really encourage you to read it. But you saw this really growth in what was called securitization, which is in the old world, you know, if you've ever seen It's a Wonderful Life, the Jimmy Stewart world of you make a loan, you keep it on your books, the borrower gets into trouble, they sit down with the lender, they work something out. Over the last 30 years, we've moved to a world where bar, uh, lender makes a loan, sells it to somebody else, puts it in a pool of securities, sells it to somebody else, held on somebody's balance sheet somewhere else. And so you start to break that chain. None of that would have been possible without the rating agencies. I'll also make, uh, I think, an important note here that when we moved from a world of one-on-one -on -one lending to a world of securitization, we lost what I would call soft information, subjective information. For instance, I'll use myself as an example. I've had four mortgages over my short life. Uh, not once did I ever meet a lender face-to-face -to, -face to get any one of those mortgages. All done by the phone, all done by the internet. And the importance of that is, pre this crisis, you go back to 1970, what made a good lender was somebody who could sit across the table, look at the ratios, and think to themselves, you know, everything looks fine here on paper, but I got a gut feeling this guy's not gonna pay me back. I'm not gonna make the loan. You lose that when you go to a world of securitization where everything is done by models and everything is done by objective information. We have lost the subjective information that is incredibly important to making credit decisions. Uh, so again, you know, to me, going back to a world where we rely a lot more on that character, on those subjective decisions, where we try to make some of that, where we aren't just model-based financial decisions, would lead to better outcomes in my opinion. Now, one of the other factors that I think drove this crisis is the growth of what are called the, and when I say banking in Basel, Basel is a city in Switzerland you may have heard of, but it's also a place where the international bank regulators meet at something called the Bank for International Settlements. And this is where they sit around and they come up with standards that they try to enforce upon the rest of the world. And so we have something called the Basel Capital Standards. And capital is the amount of what should be equity or other, or other cushions that protect the bank against loss. And so the regulators come in and say, we're going to make you hold this much capital based on the amount of assets, the type of assets, the amount of assets you have. And so it used to be very simple. You would have a certain amount of equity. You know, you'd hold 10% or you'd hold 8%. But the regulators have, since the late 70s have moved to a world where they try to micromanage how much equity you have versus certain assets. Now, there's a lot of problems with that. And for instance, I've given an example of some of what the weights. And I'll tell you how the weights work. For instance, um, a bank would have a 20% risk weighting on GSC, that's Freddie and Fannie debt. And so the way that would work is if the bank is supposed to have 8% capital, you'd multiply your 20% by eight, that's how much capital you'd get. So you'd get one and a fourth, uh, 1.4 capital rather than the 8%. Or in mortgages, if you have to hold 50%, you'd have to hold the 4% rather than the 8%. The reason that this is important is a couple of things. The weights essentially set the relative price of holding various assets. So rather than in a market where we all have different evaluations and we all have diversified holdings, by setting the same relative prices for all institutions, you are encouraging institutions to herd. You're encouraging institutions to essentially hold the same portfolios, which means that when a shock hits, they all respond to that, they all respond to that shock in the same way. So losses that might not be systemic or system-wide uh, become system-wide because everybody starts to mimic themselves because of the regulation. So there's a very real danger, and this is not simply banking, but there's a very real danger when regulation forces uniformity. Because again, you lose the diversification, you lose the variety in, in responding to shocks to the system because everybody looks the same. Now, of course, some of the problem, of course, was that the risk weightings were ridiculously inaccurate, and I will give you, to me, what's the absolute best example. All you need to know about how bad Basel was is that the risk weighting for Greek debt is zero. You hold no capital against Greek debt under Basel. You could be leveraged 1,000 to one if all you held was Greek debt. And it was the same for any sovereign debt. And of course, under the risk ratings, Greek, Greek debt was treated the same as German debt. So, you know, so it's important to keep in mind that many of these things are highly politicized. I'll also note, because of the risk weightings, we discouraged investment in productive activity. She noted the highest risk weighting here is on commercial loans. The government specifically went out of the way to say, if you lend money to somebody who opens a factory and hires people, I'm gonna penalize you. But if you lend money to Greece, go to town, do all you want. So you really pushed our, our banking system over the last several decades away from lending to business toward lending to either in the mortgage market or the sovereign debt market. And to also give you an example of how Freddie and Fannie and the capital standards 
further confused our system was let's take, and this is, this is essentially a simple, simple uh, generalized but real world example of if you're someone like Bank of America, you can take a thousand mortgages, sell those thousand mortgages to Fannie Mae, Fannie Mae wraps those thousand mortgages and in mortgage-backed security, sells it back to Bank of America, so they've just had the same mortgages, they lower their weighting from 50 to 20. Bank of America has just cut its capital in half, buying back the same loans it just sold. Uh, and by my calculations, if the largest banks who have their own problems being too big to fail had held the mortgages instead of Freddie and Fannie, we would have had 400 billion more in capital in the financial system, which certainly was a big, you know, that's about more than half of what the TARP was. So I think we could have avoided many of the bailouts if we simply did not have a system that encouraged all the risk to flow to those with the least amount of equity, the least amount of cushion. And as I mentioned before, you do get that herding behavior where everybody falls into the same assets. And of course, that's the problem, that's the problem, uh, what's going on in Europe. So to summarize, this as an aside, you can understand everything that's going on in the European crisis by, by two things. A, the banks did not have to hold any capital against the debt, and two, the governments were unconstrained in that regard. One of the reasons why after the euro was introduced, you saw a decline in interest rates across countries. Part of that is, of course, the perception that the euro, the E would bank bail out these countries. But the other part was the regulators created a captive set of demand for government debt, and that was the banks. So you are in a cycle in Europe where, essentially, the governments are bailing out the banks because the banks are bailing out the government. And until you break that cycle, and of course, the people who really get screwed by this are the taxpayer, and of course, the savers. You put your money in a bank, they put it in Greek debt, or they put it in Fannie and Freddie, you're getting a low, lot lower return because ultimately these things are defaulting. As an aside, the haircut, that is the loss on G Greek debt, has so far been 70%. So they're certainly not getting their money back in that regard. Oh, and also to give you sort of an example of how this is, how this is hurt, what I've got here is these are GSE, MBS, and direct obligations. The GSE sell uh, unsecured debt as well as MBS. And this is how much is in the banking system relative to capital. And so at the height of the crisis, if you took the entire US banking system, they held enough GSE debt, Freddie and Fannie debt, to be 150% of their capital. So what this means is that if Freddie and Fannie get in trouble and take losses, the entire banking system fails, are largely part of it. And of course, this is partly a result, again, of the capital standards that say um, you, can hold, you, can, you can hold all this debt and lower your capital. And of course, the financial regulators, in their wisdom, also decided that they would suspend what are known as concentration limits. A commercial bank today cannot lend more than 15% of its capital to any one borrower, with the exception of the government and Freddie and Fannie. Uh, and so, unsurprisingly, and let me say, it's not like they didn't know this. I've sat across the FDIC on a table when I was on the Banking Committee staff in 2004 and said, are you not concerned about this? And of course, the response was, it's somebody else's problem. Of course, it has become all of our problem. Uh, now, you know, I don't think these things are inevitable. We are not stuck with financial crises. And this is a set aside, and I'm happy to go into this in the Q&A discussion. I certainly think there's always some elements of psychology. There's always some elements of panic to it. But to draw a distinction, and I think much of Dodd-Frank and much of the bailouts were premised on that the financial crisis was not about the fundamental assets, but it was about confidence, it was about panic. Um, I think that that's an exaggeration, but I do think that confidence plays into this. But I think that there are structural things we can do. And so I'm gonna talk about these before we get to sort of Q&A about how we can try to avoid these crises to begin with. Um, the most important thing is, you will, as long as you have unsound monetary policy, you're going to have financial crises. The savings and loan crisis was caused by monetary policy. If you think about it, if you are savings and loan and you have 30-year mortgages on your books at 4% and the overnight rate or the borrowing rate goes up to 10%, let's keep in mind the early 80s mortgages got up to something like 15, 16%. Uh, and so if you've got to pay 10% to fund an asset that gives you 4%, you're losing a lot of money and you're going to go out of business sooner or later. So again, you need to get our, we need to get our monetary policy system right. I ultimately would like to get us to a system we were ending the Fed and having some sort of alternative. Uh, looking at alternatives in the, in, the, in the interim of having some sort of competitive currencies to me would discipline the Fed. Also say as an aside, maybe to sort of 
try to, try to poke a little controversy. I take a little bit of a contrarian position in that I actually hope the euro survives because I think the euro is about the only other currency that can directly compete with the dollar. If the euro goes away, you entrench the dollar in its monopoly position. And I am absolutely convinced that if the Fed has a monopoly position, they will, they will abuse it. So again, having some alternatives, even among countries, even among fiat currencies, even if our ultimate objective should be to get rid of fiat currencies. In the interim, uh, there are things we can try to do to make the Federal Reserve work better. And of course, you might be aware that the House just passed Ron Paul's audit the Fed bill. Uh, I am hopeful that maybe the Senate might take that up. I do think that is one alternative to try to bring some transparency to the Fed, increase public education, increase policymaker education. But there are a number of other things we can do. For instance, the Fed has something called a dual mandate where they're supposed to pursue price stability as well as unemployment, where they're trying to lower unemployment. Almost all the things that have gotten the Fed in trouble go back to this dual mandate. If you go back to 2003, 2004, read the press accounts, what you will hear is, it's a weak labor market. Jobs aren't being created fast enough. The Fed needs to lower interest rates, do something, uh, which really sounds like what we're hearing now. So again, you see this continued pressure as long as the labor market is sluggish for the Fed to try to create one asset bubble after another. And if you actually, and I will give him a tremendous amount of credit, Chairman Bernanke, for being honest. If you listen to his discussions about quantitative easing, he's very honest about one of his objectives is to push people out of treasuries into other assets to force up the price of those assets so that we feel wealthier and spend again. That was the whole rationale behind the housing bubble. I forget what year it is, but I think it was 2003, 2004, well, you actually had Paul Krugman write in the New York Times that the Federal Reserve should create a housing bubble so we'd feel wealthier. Well, Paul, thank you. We listened to you. And this is where we are today because of it. Um, so again, trying to constrain the Fed to focus on price stability, even though I believe that would not be sufficient. One of the other things I think we need to do is sever monetary policy from bank regulation. The Federal Reserve not only runs monetary policy, they regulate banks. Part of the problem with that is, uh, particularly in the US where if you, to give a little econ 101 in terms of how uh, monetary policy works, what's called open market operations are essentially the Federal Reserve, the central bank, sells or buys debt to banks which pulls liquidity out of the system. For instance, put, look, think about it this way, the Federal Reserve would buy treasury bills from a bank, create money to give to that bank which that bank would lend to the economy. And of course it does the reverse when it tries to draw liquidity out of the system. Now, our central bank relies on a very small number of counterparties to do that with. Currently, it's only 19, and these are called primary dealers. Now, we have such illustrious firms that were primary dealers, such as MF Global, Bear Stearns, Lehman. These were all primary dealers that were key participants in the Federal Reserve's conduct of monetary policy. But you create a conflict of interest, because if primary dealers get in trouble and go out of business, the Federal Reserve has less counterparties to deal with. The Federal Reserve cannot force any of these institutions to, buy, to participate. They have to bid. So for the Fed, they want to have more people involved in their auctions so that monetary policy can be more effective. That creates an incentive for them to say, I don't want my primary dealers to fail. And if I have to bail them out to keep them around so I can conduct monetary policy, I'm going to do that. Uh, I will note as an aside, um, there's a fairly left-wing uh, leaning professor at UC Berkeley called Barry Eichengreen who's actually written a tremendous amount of interesting work on the dollar and the international monetary system. One of the studies he has done is found looking at central banks across the world, those central banks that combine monetary policy with bank regulation get more inflation, get more bailouts. So separating this so that you have financial regulation done separately, my ideal world it would be done by the market, but in the interim, it should be done in the US by somebody other than the Fed. Now, of course, many countries have an explicit inflation target where they try to keep their central bank, you know, and if you look at the Bank of England, the ECB, all of these have inflation targets where the central bank is supposed to hit a certain number. We kind of have what people believe is sort of an implied inflation target in the US. You know, there's a, there's a sense of the Fed's always gonna shoot for around 2%. Uh, I think that is some constraint, but it really doesn't get you very far. But again, it at least makes the Fed accountable to a number. So there are some minor things we can do. Lastly, with the Fed, you know, that they really can make some governance changes. There is a reason that Congress, when it set up the Fed, set up 12 Federal Reserve banks who would have voice in the system, because what they wanted to do was moderate crises so that you didn't have a response to certain parts of the system. Unfortunately, the membership of the FOMC, which is the Federal Open Market Committee, which sets Federal Reserve policy, 
is heavily dominated by the Northeast. The New York Federal Reserve is the only one of the 12 that permanently sits on this committee. Uh, and if you actually look at the makeup of the Federal Reserve Board today, every single Fed governor today is from a state that President Obama won. Only one Fed governor is from west of the Mississippi, and that's from Janet Yellen from Berkeley, California. Not exactly flyover country. And my point being is that you really see this push from some of these places. You know, Wall Street, what they would like is easy monetary policy. What Boston would like is easy monetary policy. And that gets reflected in the makeup of the Federal Reserve. So I would just say, without going into too much detail, who sits on the Fed matters for the conduct of monetary policy in terms of what you get. If we had somebody besides Ben Bernanke, I would guarantee we would get something different. Might not be a whole lot better, but it would be different. Um, of course, we need to get rid of all these guarantees that sever market discipline. And I really want to emphasize the importance of this. For any financial institution, at least regulated, they are 90 plus percent some sort of debt, and I include deposits in that. And if you tell debt holders that they don't need to worry, you have taken 90% of the money off the table in terms of monitoring these institutions, in terms of actually looking at these institutions and making sure that they are well behaved. So one way I think about this is trying to separate out, separate strong incentives or weak incentives. And what I mean by that is our current state of the world is bank regulators look at the banks. If the banks fail, bank regulators don't lose their jobs. They kind of hang out. They still get their retirement. Uh, I would actually go as far to say that there's probably no institution in terms of bank regulators that failed more than the New York Fed. And what did we do? The president of the New York Fed at the time, Tim Geithner, we gave him a promotion. So there's absolutely no discipline on regulators should institutions get into trouble. Uh, whereas, so that's why I look at the weak incentives. Whereas creditors, if I lend you money and I'm going to lose that money if you screw up, I'm going to keep an eye on you. I have a very strong incentive. So again, ultimately what we should be trying to do is substitute very strong market incentives for the, what are very weak regulatory incentives. And, some, and these are just some of the things that have been used for bailouts. I mean, Fannie and Freddie and FHA, the federal loan banks, these are things that guarantee the lenders. And let's be very clear, I mean, a lot of my friends on the left like to paint that Freddie and Fannie uh, are competitors with the banks. Absolutely wrong. Uh, about a fourth of Fannie Mae's business during the top of the bubble was countrywide. It's Fannie and Freddie were long away for the banking industry to shift its risks ultimately to the taxpayer. In the same thing with like FHA, the Federal Housing Administration, it's really touted as a way to expand homeownership opportunities. FHA does not insure the homeowner. FHA insures the bank. And again, many of these things are not competitors with banks. They are ways that allow the bank to shift their risk to the taxpayer. And even some of them, like FHA, are presented as insurance schemes, but they almost always underprice that insurance. Um, I would end the FDIC as well, which is the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, because again, that subsidizes risk taking on the banks. 13.3 of the Federal Reserve Act is, is the section of the law that were all of these bailout programs were created under. So you know you had all of these assistance programs, whether it was for primary dealers uh, or whoever else under the sun. And so again, I would remove the Federal Reserve's ability to do those bailouts. We have something at the Treasury Department called the Exchange Stabilization Fund that was created under the Gold Act of 1934. And the purpose of the Exchange Stabilization Fund is for Treasury to manage the dollar. We have essentially, as a country for decades, abandoned the management of the dollar. We largely let it float. The Treasury Secretary might come out and try to like, talk about the importance of a strong dollar or weak dollar. But we really don't do a lot in terms of managing the dollar. What we do with this fund, however, is bail people out. Um, for instance, uh, in the 90s, during the so-called peso crisis, when Wall Street banks had a lot of money on the line that they were going to lose if Mexico defaulted, the Treasury Department, after Congress actually voted to reject bailing out Mexico, decided to use the Exchange Stabilization Fund to bail out the, the Wall Street banks that invested. I will note at the time, it was a junior Treasury official who ran the Exchange Stabilization Fund by the name of one Tim Geithner. So he's got, he got an early start on bank bailouts. And of course, we use the Exchange Stabilization Fund most recently to bail out the mutual fund industry. So again, to me, and the current, the current value of the Exchange Stabilization Fund is about 30 billion, take a few billion. So the fact that we have 30 billion sitting around that the Treasury Secretary can spend on almost anything he wants is a pretty much a guarantee to me that he's going to spend it on some things helping out the financial services industry, reducing market discipline. And so since, we, since the entire purpose of the original fund is not even there anymore, it's something that to me is a good candidate for letting go. Um, banks have an unusual situation vis-a-vis -vis other corporations. 
When a corporation fails, you usually go into a bankruptcy court. We have something different for commercial banks called receivership, and it's essentially a bankruptcy situation run by the government. Now, there are a couple of very important differences. The FDIC, for instance, that runs the receivership for banks has a big pot of money. A bankruptcy court does not have a big pot of money. Uh, the FDIC also has the ability to sort of change the rules. To me, a very important fundamental tenet of, of, of free market and a functioning market is the rule of law. In Creditors often stand in different places in line. So you might have contracted to be in front of this person to get paid. What that generally means is that you will get a lower interest rate than they will get. They're bearing more risk. And so courts cannot violate those priorities, those places in line. Regulators can, and even under Dodd-Frank can do that. They can even violate it that you and I might have contracted for the same place in line. Under Dodd-Frank, they can still say, well, I like you better than I like you, so you're going to get more out of this. And of course, you know, the, 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 the proponents of Dodd-Frank say, no, this would never happen. We would never play favorites. Uh, I only need to remind you of how the auto bailout, where UAW, the United uh, Auto Workers Union, was at the back of the line. President Obama picked them up and put them at the front of the line. People, for instance, pension funds in Indiana, retired teachers in Indiana who were in front of the line lost money that went to the UAW because rather than having people get what they contracted for, they freely voluntarily contracted for their place in line. Government picked your place in line based on how, your political importance. That is a recipe to deter and destroy investment. So, uh, you know, so again, moving away from regulatory discretion back to something resembling the rule of law that would be enforced in courts would not only end bailouts, but it would give investors certainty. Um, and again, as I mentioned, doing something rather we're moving toward more equity funding rather than debt funding, any of those subsidies. Uh, I'd say at the end of the day, um, you know, it's often made the claim that we have to regulate banking because it's risky. I, I think that that's absolutely false. The primary reason we regulate banks is because we give them a big guarantee, which severs the link between market discipline, which encourages them to take risk taking, and therefore we have to come in and make sure they don't take risk. And this is all the, all the conversations you hear about breaking up the banks or bringing back Glass-Steagall is to protect that safety net. Ultimately, what we need to do is go back and pull back that safety net so that banks will be subject to market discipline. If banks were subject to market discipline, what would they look like? They'd probably look a lot more like hedge funds. And despite some of the bad things you might read in the press about hedge fund, as I mentioned earlier, Bear Stearns was leveraged 30 to 1. Your typical commercial bank is leveraged 10 to 1. Your typical hedge fund is leveraged two to one. That is, half of that is equity. People put their own money in. And of course, that's because people are not going to put their money in a hedge fund that's leveraged 30 to one. They don't trust the risk. So you would see a lot of reduction of leverage. Uh, I did not include the graph, and I actually should have. There's a great graph that shows bank leverage over the last 100 years. And when you saw the introduction of the Federal Reserve and you saw the introduction of the FDIC, banks became a whole lot more leveraged. They became a lot riskier once the government was willing to back them. And the data is very clear on that. Um, now, of course, if we got away from and went to a free banking system where we had less regulation, we would have less leverage uh, and you know, less fractional reserve banking as well. You would also end the special mandates, because what I would characterize our system is a little bit like the government comes in, gives you some sort of guarantee, gives you some protection. And it used to be up until the 90s, the government also pretty much guaranteed you a captive market. We had very restrictive branch banking restrictions. For instance, up until the mid-90s in Texas, a bank could not even have a second branch. You had one location. So essentially, the government came in and created little monopolies, gave them little guarantees, and said, OK, I've given you all these excess profits. Now you have to funnel some of those profits to my favorite groups over here. And that's how you got things like CRA. Now, one of the things that led to the financial crisis, in my opinion, was since the 90s, increasingly so, we've seen competition from a variety of sources that have eroded those monopoly profits. And of course, getting rid of um, branch banking was one of them. Um, often, people will accuse deregulation of causing the crisis. And I've written a thing for Cato say why that's not the case. But one deregulation that actually did happen, which was terrific, in my opinion, was in 1994. Of all things, a Democrat Congress and a Democrat president decided to put an end to branch banking restrictions. And the reason that this is important is that if you have a bank that's in one town, that's their only location, if that economy goes south, particularly like if it's a town where there's one big employer, that bank is going to fail. 
So one of the problems that has plagued banking up until about the 90s, and even a little bit today, lack of regional diversification. Even today, there is no bank that has, has branches in all 50 states. So again, you have historically had banks heavily dependent on local economic conditions. Whereas, for instance, um, if you were one of the things that has allowed Wells Fargo to survive, Wells Fargo started out as a California mortgage lender. Now, if most of their portfolio was still California mortgages, they'd probably be in a lot of trouble today, and that's not to say they're not in any trouble. But the fact that they have spread their portfolio geographically has allowed them to minimize the losses in California offset with gains elsewhere. So again, having that geographic represent, uh, diversification is very important. But to go back to my point, one, I think one of the results of leading the financial crisis was this combination of having this intense competition with a guarantee. And so let me be very clear, in my opinion, you cannot mix competition and guarantees. If you do that, the guarantees will be called upon. Now, because I like competition, and I believe competition offers you choice, offers you efficiencies, you have to get rid of the guarantees. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, you really cannot have asset bubbles without some sort of supply rigidity. So I think we really need to take a very hard look at trying to deregulate our housing market uh, so it makes it much easier to build. And this is the same with the property market in general. So again, trying to make sure that supply and demand can come on quickly and easily. So before I open up to questions, before I open up to discussion, and of course any comments, it's just to keep in mind that financial crises are not simply bad because of their financial crises, but they really do, in my opinion, have a major threat to liberty, have a major threat to support for the marketplace, and really do undermine you know, support in terms of growing free markets. Uh, unfortunately, there is this horrible chain where government causes a financial crisis, government grows. Government causes the next financial crisis, grows more. So they tend to be, in my opinion, as I listed out these factors, the major driver of financial crises, and, and unfortunately enough, they're also the major beneficiary of financial crises. So at the end of the day, to simplify, what I want you to take away from this is the only way we're really gonna end financial crises is bringing market discipline back into banking. And I wanna emphasize, it has to be on the part of the creditors as well. One of the things we heard throughout the crisis was then Secretary Paulson would say things like, it wasn't a bailout, we wiped out shareholders and fired management. Oh, but we protected 90% of the people we lent money to it because of the creditors. That is still a bailout. And until we stop bailing out creditors, we will not incentivize creditors to monitor these institutions and actually try to make them behave themselves. So I know that's a lot of detail. I'll also say I'm happy to talk about any other issues on monetary policy and banking in general. But I think let's open up to questions, have a discussion. And certainly, uh, I know we're very fortunate to have a handful of people in the audience who have more expertise than I in the financial markets. So certainly, feel free to correct me or offer some other thoughts. I want to thank you for your time. And I'll certainly be around. <laughs>